This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, Joe Pfeiffer is talking with Billie Jean Mounts, Chief Revenue Officer for Bon Secours Mercy Health. She joined Joe earlier this week to talk about how her organization has responded to the coronavirus. Well, today's guest is Billie Jean Mounts. Billie Jean is the Chief Revenue Officer for Bon Secours Mercy Health which I hope you all know, but it's a Catholic healthcare ministry. Bon Secours Mercy is comprised of 50 hospitals and more than 450 locations serving people in Ohio and Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, South Carolina, and now in Ireland. In her role, Bill Jean is responsible for system-wide net revenue analytics, uh, payer rate trend analyses, uh, revenue budgets and forecasts, which I can't wait to talk with her about annual government reimbursement, regulatory reporting, managed care contracting, and serves as operations finance liaison to the revenue cycle. Previously, Billie Jean was Chief Reimbursement Officer at Providence Health and Services. Uh, In her role there, Billie Jean established the system's corporate reimbursement function, aligning five regional reimbursement teams into one. This function was responsible for monthly net revenue calculations, annual cost reports, and reimbursement-related regulatory filings. This function also communicated changes and trends to the finance team, serves others by proactively providing timely updates as new regulations are implemented and ensured that all Providence entities were compliant with existing Medicare regulations. Prior to her time at Providence, Billie Jean was the Assistant Vice President of Reimbursement for Health Management Associates, or HMA, in uh, Naples, Florida, and was responsible for the oversight of Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement for the company's 71 hospitals located in 15 states. Over the course of her career with HMA, she served in various positions, including reimbursement manager, director of reimbursement, and director of reimbursement financial reporting. Finally, Billie Jean received her Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration from Bryant University in Smithfield, Rhode Island. She's a fellow with HFMA, an active member of the HFMA Southwest Ohio chapter. She's a recipient of HFMA's Fulmer Bronze, Reeves Silver, Monthly Gold, and Medal of Honor Award. And Billie Jean is past president of the Florida chapter, where she was recognized with the Florence Henry Award for Excellence in Women's Leadership. And I would add on to that, she completed her year as uh, the Florida chapter president, even though she was out west in Providence, which was a Herculean effort. So Billie Jean, what a great background. One of the preeminent healthcare financial leaders in the country. I'm really thrilled to have you here. Welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you, Joe, and and thank you for having me here today. Well, my gosh, Um, you know, you and I go back a long time, and we've had a lot of conversations, none about something that has hit us so dramatically as this, and I wish it was under different circumstances that we were chatting, but talk about this coronavirus or COVID-19, whichever term you want to use, 
could you just describe the overall environment that you're dealing with with either your team or your organization? I would say it constantly evolves and changes, say, even on an hourly basis. <laughs> so, you know, being based in Ohio as readiness for the COVID outbreak, if you will, had started, um, you'll recall that the state of Ohio was really at the forefront in terms of preparation compared to other states. And so our governor, DeWine, got very involved early to put some things in place around working from home, social distancing, and actually regulating, canceling um, elective procedures. And so I think it's now we're in our fourth week um, as an organization of uh, working from home. And so announcing all of that across our shared service areas and our administrative functions, that began back on March the 16th. And the work involved to communicate and then make sure that we were ready to go and not miss a beat to support our clinicians at the front lines. All of us have had to get used to the technology, relying on conference calls and uh, the technology resources uh, to be able to stay connected. We put in place an incident command structure for our system so we have that uh, governance structure at the system level and also at the market level. And so uh, constant updates on a daily basis of, of activities and our preparation for the surge. I know I'm reading about this every day, and it, it just strikes me as I'm talking to you live how, how amazing that is. So just for the listeners, we're recording this today's date. It's April 8th. So when you talk about having this in place March 16th, and it you know it was probably a plan that was put together in a very short period of time, it's amazing. It's just amazing <laughs> that you could pull all that off. I'm curious. Now you've been into it for several weeks, you know, many of your staff working at home. I'm a big believer in culture management. I think that's a huge part of every organization. Every single staff meeting uh, we have at HFMA, we talk about culture in some way. So can you just talk a little bit about how you're staying connected with your folks or maintaining the culture within Bond Secure's Mercy? We have quite a number of ways to instill our culture, even though we're working remotely. As a Catholic organization, you know, we start all of our meetings off with a reflection. And those habits have not fallen by the wayside, I would say, even during this time. As I mentioned, with the incident command structure, we have uh, normal cadences of communications that are sent to the leaders in the organization, as well as um, all associates. And so there's a daily uh, COVID-19 push, and we have an intranet set up with um, resources for every area of our operation to help prepare them for the COVID-19 response. And then one of those areas is, is around mission. We have uh, our senior executive leaders do a daily podcast, giving some inspiration, reflections, and et cetera, to keep everyone motivated and grounded in our culture. One of the tenets of our culture is to remain agile. And so mm -hmm. with this incident command structure, it's allowed us to make decisions quickly and uh, make sure that the right resources are available to our front lines in a timely manner. Doing the best you can is what it sounds like. To put a wrapper on that whole thing is you just try to stay communicating to the best of your ability. How about some of the, the dark side of this, uh, and that's just starting to come out. Again, as of this date, we had a few announcements last week, and I'm sure more 
will develop as of this week, but there's going to be a need to reduce costs. The business is shifting overnight away from some <laughs> parts of the organization into some others. You know, when anytime you have business shifting around and reductions like some organizations have seen, we look at either furloughs or cost issues. So I don't know if this is an area you really feel like going with me, <laughs> to be honest, Billy Jean, but can you talk a little bit about what you're doing on the cost management side? What I would tell you, Joe, is, you know, obviously the, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused an unprecedented demand for healthcare services, and we've deployed our caregivers and others to meet the community needs. However, on the other side of that, it also has caused an unprecedented decline in the services and other work within our ministry. And so with the decline that we've seen in elective procedures and services and really unanticipated expenditures related to our COVID-19 response, we're facing those hard decisions over the short term. So our resources, people, supplies, and finances all must be dedicated specifically to responding to COVID-19. And so for that reason, we took uh, three key steps just last week. First, we implemented a hiring freeze, which predominantly impacted our shared service and our administrative functions that support clinical care. And then secondly, on the non-clinical care wage increases were frozen effective immediately for the same uh, associates. And then third, we looked at our shared service associates who aren't directly supporting the current COVID-19 response activities and place them on a furlough and a temporary layoffs. And it impacted about 700 people across our organization and just about 1% of our associates. And, you know, although that's the dark side of it, we were able to put additional help in place for our associates. Our foundation donated $60 million to a hardship fund to help our associates that might face financial challenges as a result to, to the furlough. Wow, that's really cool. I had not heard that before, and um, and I don't know that I've heard that with anywhere else. So congrats to your organization for that. Hey, if I could just share a little bit, you, you sent me a note uh, last week, and then you said, boy, is there a way that our employees, because you're an enterprise member organization, and you said, is there any way for our employees to stay engaged and even do certification while they're furloughed? Could you talk a little bit about what you were thinking and, and whether that's going to play out or not? As you can imagine, with the notification of furloughs that came last Tuesday, we rapidly deployed that, and so people actually started their furlough today. You know, it's quite a shock for those individuals to get that news and then quickly work on transition plans over a three-day period. And so I was in constant contact with my team that were impacted, and I reminded them about the enterprise membership and of all the times that, you know, you couldn't make the time to either work on a certification or take in a webinar, you know, reminded them of that resource that we were able to leave in place for our finance associates. And, you know, really um, hoping they take that opportunity to heart and work on the education that they can continue to stay connected to the industry during this furlough period. And, uh, yeah. you know, there were many people that were appreciative of that opportunity. Well, that one really resonated with me. I had a pretty nasty knee injury a couple of years ago, and I literally was on my couch for several weeks. 
it was worse than a knee replacement kind of a surgical repair. And uh, while I had become certified many, many years ago, uh, back in the dark ages, we have a new certification approach for the fellowship. And so I decided this would be a good chance for me to test our own, our own new certification process. So I redid the certification exam while I was sitting on the couch. And it was very different in many, many ways than what's going on today. But you're right, taking advantage of that, all of a sudden, that very significant change in someone's schedule can be, he could still turn it into a positive. And it's not like drawing a paycheck, but it is uh, keeps you engaged. So I got a kick out of uh, your desires there. And I hope that plays out for your folks. Let me shift gears a little bit. I'm hearing just tons about just a massive shift towards telehealth and other distance care or digital health, whatever term you know people want to use. Some of the stats of practices going from 90% live of 10% telehealth to be completely the reciprocal of that, or even you know more of a dramatic shift. Can you talk a little bit about what your organization's done in this space? I would say, you know, a lot of this work is, I think, come out of necessity to try to limit face-to-face treatment right now. And so really taking the approach of looking at everything, whether it be on the hospital outpatient side or even in our physician practices, what can be done in a virtual health setting. So currently, Bon Secours Mercy Health has a number of options available for established and and new patients, so creating those virtual access points across our ministry to make sure that we are, uh, you know, continuing the social distancing. And so in addition to that, we're an EPIC uh, organization, and so um, having the e-visits available through my chart, we've been able to ramp up our activity there to uh, make that available also, you know, communicate with our patients through the MyChart app as well has been a, a very effective way to reach reach our patients. But it does take kind of a, a multi-pronged approach because not everyone has adopted the technology yet. Uh, and so we're doing uh, some work around how to make sure that we reach all of our patients, even those who are not, who have not adopted the technology. In terms of e-visits, We've seen a dramatic increase in volume since we have uh, been, you know, working to socialize that across, across our uh, our footprint. In the total uh, last nine days, about, you know, a week and a half compared to the last 12 months, mm-hmm. our volumes were up 28%. So wow. yeah. we um, yeah. got to, you know, a third of last year's volume in a week and a half. So. The technology is being used, and I think what's interesting for our for our industry is that I don't think we're going to go backwards, Joe. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so talk a little bit about that. Have you talked about that organizationally? I mean, it's impossible to model, but that's kind of the conventional wisdom that's developing is that that's a genie that's out of the bottle and won't go back in. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when we kind of get on the other side of this curve, I think it will be interesting to see, you know, what does go back to the traditional, you know, office-type visit. Um, I do believe that there'll still have to be in-person <laughs> treatment, obviously, for, for diagnosis. Sure, yes. Um, but uh, I think now that people have had to try it out of necessity, we will get probably better adoption rates of the technology and, uh, you know, be able to continue down the path of freeing up capacity so that we can just take care of people who are sick and need us. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You you know uh, that, that HFMA and then I personally have been talking about consumerism for many, many years. And to me, this is going to be, you know, a shock in that direction. Because if you look at this whole environment from a consumer perspective, it's like, do I want to jump in my car and drive, you know, a half an hour to sit in the waiting room for a while to have a 10-minute conversation that's necessary, but um, mm-hmm. and then drive another half an hour home? Or do I want to sit in, you know, with my hoodie on, uh, you know, in my living room and, you know, queue up a conversation and get the same thing done? You know, this is the kind of consumerism behavior that I think is going to, that that is the genie that's out of the bottle now in a lot of ways. So we'll have to adjust yeah. to that as an organization, and that has, yeah. Lots of revenue cycle and billing and coding and all kinds of implications to it. Yeah, it does. I have my uh, own personal experience with, with the telemedicine already. Um, my son uh, takes speech therapy, and uh, we were able to do virtual visits on speech um, last week and well, resume activities yeah. there. And just, just amazing to jump back in where we left off and, and continue yeah. his treatment. So that'll be interesting for us as a, uh, you know, as the financial people in healthcare, whether it's, you know, people doing budgets to modeling to those on the revenue cycle side or the or on the reimbursement side, how do we recalibrate? I mean, it's been a rush right now and probably a little blind because we're doing the right thing for the right reason. But to recalibrate our workflows and payment models and all that after the fact, that's going to play out over time. So that'll be really interesting to watch. Can you think of other, maybe other short or long-term revenue cycle issues uh, coming out of this whole scenario that you think might uh, be relevant for our listeners? Yeah, you know, and I think about, you know, what we're doing around uh, telehealth specifically, Joe. The payers are really all over the board in terms of what they'll cover um, in this. And and even uh, for Medicare, you know, there are specific things that are being covered right now and also under a certain date. So right now, because it's COVID-19 related, a lot of these services are being covered by the payers. But what happens mm-hmm. when we get on the other side of this? Is it business as usual, or are we going right. to have to take some administrative action to make this a permanent treatment um, possibility? And uh, I think that that is going to take some time for the industry to kind of work through, you know, what what turned out to work well during this um, uh, crisis, if you will, and, and mm-hmm. what could sustain for the long term? And I and I hope I hope as an industry that all the, all of the things that we're trying to do to to uh, free up capacity and, and make these tools available that it does sustain. Well, and some of those are going to require good working relationship between uh, the provider and uh, the insurance side of the equation. And you know, mm-hmm. when you mentioned that the insurers and the payers are, you know, of all kinds of different, you know, policies, that's just like everything else in today in today's healthcare, isn't it? But to coordinate how you know what this looks like after the fact, that that in and of itself will be a, a time consuming process. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're even um, you know, trying to track, you know, all the various payer policies around COVID-19 response in general, and then just how they're handling telemedicine, how they're handling prior authorizations. And it changes daily with the payers as well. Mm-hmm. And they've even mm-hmm. gotten to a point of just updating their websites. So it takes, you know, someone to constantly monitor, you know, what the payers are doing 
you know, we'd really like to see more of the administrative burdens in the short term suspended while we're focused on COVID-19 and then making sure that we're documenting as we go all of these changes. And then when we're on the other side, when we go back to business as usual, that we reinstate our previous workflows. So I think there'll be bumps in the road as we kind of move through this process. And then keeping in mind that we're all trying to navigate this while working from home. So that's um, true. (laughs) That's right. mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. If it wasn't yeah. complicated enough, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, another kind of general topic, but it's related to the whole consumerism. But can you just talk a little bit about what steps what steps you're making it easier for for the patient or consumer in this? And you mentioned a couple things already, but it was mostly on the clinical side. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing on on the revenue cycle side to make it easier? Well, in terms of COVID-19 specifically, we wanted to make sure that we were eliminating all of our access to patient care, and one of those being the perceived barrier around uh, deductible and coinsurances that a patient may have. So what we've done is um, we are holding all of our patient statements currently because we keep getting different updates from the payers that they're waiving those deductibles and coinsurances. And so to make sure that that a patient doesn't get a surprise bill from us, we are holding those balances right now until we work through the logistics with the payers. Separately, you know, looking at all of our collection processes in general to see, do we have any flexibility around payment arrangements, you know, understanding that um, there are many people now that are forced with, you know, facing unemployment and may may have a difficult time paying their outstanding balances. And so our, our next phase is to kind of look at what we can do more to help our patients during this time as well. Well, that's really important. I talked to a CFO just the other day, and they were doing some very similar things in in that organization. But he said, you know, Joe, the dilemma I have is, you know, we're running at about a 40% reduction of revenue right now. And he said, I I got to be able to keep the organization afloat, and I have to be able to send bills out. So he, in that case, he was trying to balance some of those consumer-friendly steps with the steps of just the practic, you know, the business practicalities of, you know, at some point we have to bill and some point we have to collect for services. So it's a real dilemma, I think, for people in your position to have to balance those very strong uh, influences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I give you a ton of credit for doing it. One more thing. I, I, uh, I can't resist. When we were going back and forth last week and we were talking about whether you'd be able to join me for a podcast, you sent me a picture of what it's like for you to work at home now. And it was a a picture of, I don't know if that was your three-year-old son, standing outside your glass window, (laughs) peering into your office. And so what's it been like working at home? And I want to know, is your son certified yet? Has he done the exam? Well, Joe, it's kind of interesting because uh, my son will uh, loves to barrel into my office and he makes a beeline for my chapter president gavel. So HFMA is definitely in his blood. But, uh, you know, we are adjusting to uh, the work from home schedule. And, you know, it takes some work with him to fall into a routine every day. So, you know, we start our days with breakfast at home and just like I would if I was going into the office. And then he knows when I go into the office and close the door that mommy's at work. 
And so it doesn't stop him from coming to look at me through the glass doors. <laughs> but uh, when I do take breaks, um, you know, throughout the day, um, you know, he does try to come over and play with mommy. So um, it's actually, uh, it's been fun for me to have this extra time with him in between meetings and and uh, be home with them at this age. But I would tell you that, uh, you know, my colleagues, you know, all that have kids of various ages are having to, you know, struggle with that new normal of whether it be getting kids to do their schoolwork with virtual learning and, and keeping everyone engaged. And, and I would say, you know, work from home, if you're assigned to do it, you figure out how to navigate, um, how to set up your home office pretty effectively. But when you have a full house with family members and everyone coming and going and having various activities, there's nowhere for people to go right now. You can't send them out to the mall or send them out to the store and give you some quiet time. So uh, it's really a challenge for all of us right now. Yeah. You know, and everybody's got, to your point, develop their own rhythm through the day. I know I work from home a fair amount, even in the normal course of business. And I remember Early on, I would, you know, because my office is down away from Illinois, and I would go up into the kitchen and get a cup of coffee, and my wife would be there, and I'd chat with her for a few minutes. And I remember early on, I would feel guilty, like, oh, my gosh, I can't take this five or ten minutes and have that conversation. But then when I go to my offices in the Chicagoland area, I don't bet an eye to get up and go down and get a cup of coffee uh, at the coffee shop down on the first floor in our office complex. And that whole process takes probably 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the line. So it's interesting how working at home, you just have to you have to establish really a different mindset, and it's okay to have those little breaks, <laughs> which are necessary, mm-hmm. and you don't have to feel guilty about it. But everybody's got to develop their own rhythm, and um, uh, mm-hmm. you've obviously uh, done that well. So, uh, And what a cute fun you have from I wish I could show everybody the picture that you sent me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you might have had it I think you might have had his nose pressed up against the window. Well, hey Billy Jean, at a time when um you probably have never been busier in your life or at least it rivals it, um I can't thank you enough for taking time and, and uh sharing your thoughts. Uh you're one of the preeminent leaders in our country. You work for just a wonderful health system, uh, doing cutting-edge things. And for you to share that with our members is really uh, very much appreciated. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again, Joe. It was great. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and is written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Mary Mirabelli and Rick Gundling for their help with this production. Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org.